Voices from the front lines, your national movement building show. I'm in studio with Channing Martinez getting ready for this show, and we're excited about it. It's got two major segments to it. The second one, which is the bigger one, will be the continued presentations of our very successful event on Thursday, February 17th, called uh, The Genius of Walter Rodney how Europe underdeveloped Africa. Many of you are lucky enough to hear Dr. Robin Kelly's full presentation of just an amazing talk last week. If you missed it, please go up on our website, voicesfromthefrontlines.com, register if you haven't, and then download this amazing show. Today we're going to have two parts of the show. So the first part, as I said, are going to be more of the speakers We'll begin with Channing Martinez, who framed the evening, the director of organizing of the Labor Community Strategy Center. We're then going to move to Patricia Rodney, the president of the Walter Rodney Foundation, which you can reach at WalterRodneyFoundation.org. Then her daughter Asha, and Patricia was is Walter's wife, and Asha is Walter's daughter. Asha is very active in the foundation, and she's the head of the annual symposium, which will be this March 26th. And you can also find information on the WalterRodneyFoundation.org and the Strategy Center. We'll most likely be having both Patricia and Asha on the show beforehand, because this can be a major event, and we're going to try to turn out a lot of people for it. So after Channing, and then Patricia, and then Asha, we're going to go to... Ashley Woodard Henderson. Ashley is a very dynamic organizer, the co-executive director of the Highlander Center, and she's going to talk about how Europe underdeveloped Africa and its impact on the Black South and the South in general. So those would be some great speakers. Before then, and now not speaking for the strategy center, not speaking for the National Leadership School, but speaking for myself, I've been, as you have, deeply upset about the situation in the Ukraine. And I'll be giving a presentation mainly by reading the work of Chris Hedges called Chronicle of War Foretold on February 25th, 2022. The punchline is that we both believe that the United States has provoked an encirclement of Russia, created tensions inside the Ukraine, and that NATO and the United States are trying to encircle Russia and provoke this crisis. We don't have to agree with every specific tactical choice that Russia is making to understand that this was not a problem of their own making. This was a conscious problem 
on the part of NATO and the United States to provoke a crisis in the Ukraine. With that, we'll have my commentary first, and then we'll have the wonderful participants from the Walter on the event. And before we begin both, it is once again fund drive time. And we are very appreciative that the station allows us to do the programs that we want to do in the ways that we want to do it. And all we have to do is ask you for money. And of course, the other side of it is all you have to do is give the money. So we have settled right now on three exciting premiums. It begins with a $250 contribution for the four-DVD set, Portrait of the Artist by Paul Robeson. Between listening to his amazing voice and seeing some of the plays he was in, some of the films that were not very good, in which he was badly cast, and some of the great ones, and seeing uh, Sidney Poitier's wonderful story of Paul Robeson, well worth $250, and we urge you to get it. There will also be my book, Playbook for Progressives, The 16 Qualities of a Successful Organizer, because after you read and see things, my book addresses the question, so what are you going to do about it? And finally, our new classic, uh, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa by Walter Rodney, who's going to be the subject of today's show and last week's show and next week's show. So for $100, How Europe Undeveloped Africa, for $100, Playbook, for $250, Portrait of an Artist, and if you can afford it or want to, you get it. Add 100 or add 200, and you can get to 350 or 450. We really appreciate your support for the show, and we're offering you the very finest premiums we can. So I want to talk about Russia and the Ukraine. You know, like on a lot of things, sort of developing what we call a political line and analysis is very, very difficult. But I have to say that in everything in life, we sort of start with what we call preliminary hypothesis. My preliminary hypothesis is that the United States is the greatest danger to the world, the greatest source of violence in the world. Secondly, I am very pro-Soviet Union, and I still cannot forgive the United States for allowing Germany to invade the Soviet Union, knowing that was going to happen, and standing by what 26 million Soviet citizens and soldiers were killed, while the United States did not want to open up a second front in the war, hoping that the Soviet Union would be decimated. And then after the war, the Soviets, one of the things they wanted was protection from a third German invasion that had already started in World War I and started World War II. And yes, a U.S. invasion, since the United States had just dropped the bomb on Hiroshima in 1947. So I begin that the protection of Russia, which is no longer the Soviet Union, should still be uh, a high priority for the peace movement throughout the world and the anti-imperialist movement because I do not think Russia offers a threat to the United States, and I think the United States offers a tremendous threat to Russia. Now we get into the specifics of the Ukraine, and that's where I say, at first, I don't know. I don't want to just jump in and tell you uh, easy things. But I also tend to go to the people who I agree with the most. So I've been listening to Katrina Van Den Hoeven uh, of The Nation, and then my friend, uh, Bob Tomaszewski, 
just sent me an article by Chris Hedges in Counterpunch that did express a lot of the things that I was trying to figure out and gave a lot of the historical background that I've been trying to research. In a future show, we'd like to have Chris and maybe Katrina on the show. But since I just got this, I do want to read you the bulk of this article because I think it's very instructive, especially watching, I'm sorry, watching Biden and the Democrats and Republicans just talking about threatening nuclear war with Russia as if it's nothing. So this is called Chronicle of War Foretold by Chris Hedges. It's in one of my very favorite magazines, Counterpunch, dated February 25th, 2022. Chris Hedges writes, I was in Eastern Europe in 1989, reporting on the revolutions that overthrew the ossified communist dictatorships that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. It was a time of hope. NATO, with the breakup of the Soviet Empire, became obsolete. President Mikhail Gorbachev reached out to Washington and Europe to build a new security pact that would include Russia. Secretary of State James Baker and the Reagan administration, along with the West German Foreign Minister Hans-Dietrich Genscher, assured the Soviet Union that if Germany was unified, and you have to remember this was a concession to Germany, NATO would not be extended beyond the new borders. The commitment not to expand NATO, also made by Great Britain and France, appeared to herald a new global order. Now, there was a near universal understanding among diplomats and political leaders at the time that any attempt to expand NATO was foolish, an unwarranted provocation against Russia. I would say to Chris, it's not an unwarranted provocation. It serves geopolitical efforts to keep provoking Russia. But how naive we were. The war industry did not intend to shrink the power of its profits. It set out almost immediately to recruit the former communist bloc countries into the European Union and NATO. Now, when we say originally, this is Eric, they promised to not expand the borders of NATO, They then did. The countries that joined NATO, which now include Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, Albania, Croatia, Montenegro, and North Macedonia, were forced to reconfigure their militaries, often through hefty loans to become compatible with NATO military hardware. So that's to say they joined NATO as a military alliance and they were given military weapons by the United States with what purpose except to attack the Soviet Union? Because who was left? There was no so-called Warsaw Pact countries. And these countries that wanted to say, okay, I'll just join NATO, they said, no, we have to integrate you with the appropriate weapons for the future attack on, well, gee, I wonder who that could be. The expansion of NATO swiftly became a multi-billion dollar bonanza for the corporations that had profited from the Cold War. Poland, for example, just agreed to spend $6 billion on M1 Abrams tanks and other U.S. military equipment. If Russia would not acquiesce to again being the enemy, then Russia could be pressured into becoming the enemy. I repeat, the United States wants to provoke 
Russia into being the enemy. And here we are, at the brink of another Cold War, one from which only the war industry will profit, or as W.H. Auden wrote, the little children die in the streets. Now, the consequences of pushing NATO up to the borders with Russia, there is now a NATO missile base in Poland, a hundred miles from the Russian border. Wait, but Cuba can't exist 90 miles from the U.S. border, but they're always putting weapons right up against the Soviet Union. This was well known to policymakers, yet they did it anyway. In a classified diplomatic cable obtained and released by WikiLeaks, dated February 1, 2008, written from Moscow and addressed to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, NATO-European Cooperative National Security Council, Russia-Moscow Political Collective, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, there was an unequivocal understanding that expanding NATO risked an eventual conflict with Russia, especially over the Ukraine. And here's the quote. Not only does Russia perceive encirclement by NATO and efforts to undermine, undermine Russia's influence in the region, it also fears unpredictable and uncontrolled consequences which would seriously affect Russian security interests, the cable reads. Experts tell us that Russia is particularly worried that the strong divisions in the Ukraine over NATO membership, that is to say there's many more pro-Russian forces on one side, and they're not just supporting NATO, but they're pro-fascist forces, with much of the ethnic Russian community is against membership in NATO, could lead to a major split involving violence or, at worst, civil war. In that eventuality, Russia would have to decide whether to intervene, a decision Russia does not want to have to face. Dmitry Trenin, Deputy Director of the Carnegie Moscow Center, expressed concern that Ukraine was, in the long term, the most potentially debilitating factor in U.S.-Russian relations, given the level of emotion and neuralgia triggered by its quest for NATO membership. Because membership in NATO remained a divisive in Ukrainian domestic politics, it created an opening for Russian intervention. Trenin expressed concern that elements within the Russian establishment would be encouraged to meddle, stimulating U.S. overt encouragement of opposing political forces, and leaving the U.S. and Russia in a classic confrontational posture. The Obama administration, not wanting to further inflame tensions with Russia, interestingly, blocked arms sales to Kiev, which is in the Ukraine. But this act of prudence was abandoned by the Trump and Biden administrations, weapon from the U.S. and Great Britain are pouring into the Ukraine, part of the $1.5 billion in promised military aid. The equipment includes hundreds of sophisticated javelins and NLAW anti-tank weapons, despite repeated protests from Moscow. So let's just be clear, okay? Russia has a powder keg on its border. There are forces, in, this is Eric speaking, there are forces inside the Ukraine who hate Russia and want to ally with NATO. There are forces in the Ukraine who are Russian and very pro-Russian. 
So you definitely have the possibility of a civil war. So what would you tend to do if you cared about Russia? You would do everything you can to tamp down those conflicts, to keep U.S. weapons out of the whole situation, and to sell, to tell the people in the Ukraine, you better get along with Russia. You know, if you want your sovereignty, don't keep provoking it, and we're not going to back you. you. You know, we do not want to have a fight with Russia, so don't you provoke one. But no, it just seems the opposite, that the United States is hoping that the Ukraine provokes some problem with Russia to give the United States and NATO an opportunity to come in and interfere, in my opinion, with the internal affairs of Russia by coming into Ukraine. Now, once NATO is expanded into Eastern Europe, the Clinton administration promised Moscow that NATO combat troops would not be stationed in Eastern Europe, the defining issue of the NATO-Russia founding act of mutual relations. This promise again turned out to be a lie. Then in 2014, the U.S. backed a coup, check this out, against the Ukrainian president, Viktor Yanukovych, who sought to build an economic alliance with Russia rather than the European Union. So basically, when the Ukraine was trying to be friendly with Russia, the United States overthrew them. So now you're saying, well, there's a lot of forces in, in Ukraine who don't like Russia. Yeah, you created them to some degree. You got rid of the pro-Russian forces inside of the Ukraine to make a provocation with Russia more probable. And I'm sure the Native Americans listening saying, well, why would you ever sign any treaties with the United States since it breaks them all? Of course, once integrated into the European Union, as seen in the rest of Europe, the next step is integrated into NATO. Russia, spooked by the coup, alarmed at the overtures by the EU and NATO, then annexed Crimea, largely populated by Russian speakers. And the death spiral that led us to the conflict currently underway in the Ukraine became unstoppable. The war state needs enemies to sustain itself. When an enemy can't be found, an enemy is manufactured. Putin has become, in the words of Senator Angus King, the new Hitler, out to grab the Ukraine and the rest of Eastern Europe. The full-throated cries for war echoed shamelessly by the press, in particular MSNBC and CNN, are justified by draining the conflict of historical context. That is to say, by acting like we don't know what's going on there. Why is Russia so upset with the Ukraine? And all of a sudden, there's this great love of Ukrainians. Elevating ourselves, of course, as the saviors and whoever we oppose, from Saddam Hussein to Putin as the new Nazi. Chris Hedges uh, ends by saying, I don't know where this will end. We must remember, as Putin reminded us, that Russia is a nuclear power. We must remember that once you open up the Pandora's box of war, it unleashes dark and murderous forces no one can control. I know this from personal experience. The match has been lit. The tragedy is there never wasn't any dispute about how the conflagration would start. So it was originally in the Shear Post by Chris Hedges. So I just want to end with a couple of thoughts. I mean, this is excellent background of things I should have known but didn't know. 
But here's the whole point. The United States is encircling China. It is calling itself a Pacific power. China and Russia issued a statement that they would like a civilized relationship with the United States, what we call a bipolar world. You have your social system, you let ours. But U.S. imperialism is declining right now. It needs war. It needs also, given how fascist the people are in the United States growing, Biden feels like unless he provokes some kind of a war, he has no chance against the fascists, so why doesn't he act like one? I'm terrified, I think, for those people that worked for Biden, as I did, and, and Kamala Harris, have to ask ourselves now, uh, you can have an anti-fascist united front with the imperialists, but you can't have an anti-imperialist united front with the imperialists. And right now, the United States, in my opinion, is the greatest danger in the world and the greatest danger in the Ukraine. This is Eric Mann, with great appreciation to Bob Tomaszewski, to Katrina Vandenhuvel, and to Chris Hedges. Support KPFK and Voices from the Front Lines. Call 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. Today on Voices from the Front Lines, we have three premiums available to support KPFK. First, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa by Walter Rodney for $100. Second, Eric Mann's Playbook for Progressive 16 Qualities of the Successful Organizer, also for $100. And one of our all-time favorites, Paul Robeson's Portrait of the Artist about the great legacy and work of Paul Robeson for $250. Support KPFK and Voices from the Front Lines today by making a generous contribution. Call 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. Welcome back to Voices from the Frontlines, your movement-building show. As promised, we're back again this week with part two of How Europe Underdeveloped Africa and the Genius of Walter Rodney. This week, you will hear four talks. One, beginning with myself, Channing Martinez. You'll also hear from Patricia Rodney, then Asha Rodney, and then Ashley Woodard Henderson. Again, Please remember that we'd like to hear from you. Please email us with your comments and questions to eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com or info at thestrategycenter.org. Thank you. So I'm Channing Martinez. I'm director of organizing. I have the wonderful opportunity to welcome everyone to the house. And welcome to the National Leadership School for Strategic Organizing. So, you know, the the thing I've been saying a lot, because I'm really excited about it, is that I got the opportunity to read chapter one of Walter Rodney's book, In Belize, In the Third World. And 
it was, I mean, there's obviously great benefits to it, like sitting on the beach next to the ocean and reading a book, which is just, if you've never tried that, you should try that. <laughs> um, but, you know, one thing that I learned is that, you know, they're not under traditional colonialism, but they are under neocolonialism. And as Walter Rodney is explaining decolonialization, colonialization, development, and developing and underdevelopment, you know, I just had to look up and see that in plain sight in Belize, right? Being able to read that in Belize and seeing it so clearly spelled out in Belize helped me to think about, does this model even exist here in Los Angeles? And the model of which I'm referring to is this concept or the, dial the dialectic between developing and underdeveloped. And one thing Walter Robney talks about is just this concept, the racist nature, the imperialist nature of this concept of developing. How can you be calling countries developing as if they're just, they're just behind, they're just appendages of Europe and they just have not caught up yet. And that's not the case, right? The case that he argues is that actually, no, it's underdeveloped. Um, and what it, the one thing that I learned that it means is it's not just that they exploited Africa. It's not just that they exploited every single country. It's that they've actively worked for a demise. They've actively worked to, to prevent development, right? Um, and a lot of that I saw in Belize, right? They're actively working so that people in Belize are not developing and that they're giving everything to the tourist industry. But that brought me back here to the United States because obviously I live in the United States. I would love to live in Belize. Um, but here I realized, you know, when he's talking about neo-colonialists and the African sellouts, and he's talking about all the different aspects of underdevelopment, I'm able to basically point that out here in Los Angeles, right? So as an example, we've been taking on the Metro for at least 25 years, if not 30. Unlike the LAUSD, we have not gotten far with the, the actual Metro, right? We've been calling on Metro to implement free public transportation, no police on Metro buses and trains, stop the MTA attacks against black passengers, no cars in LA, among many demands. Now, before I get to the Metro, as an example of the way things should be done, we've been working with LAUSD for almost equally as long, about 15 to 20 years. We've made great strides with LAUSD. That's not to say they're perfect, but we pressured LAUSD, they got rid of the tanks. They got rid of the three grenade launchers. They got rid of the 61 M16 assault rifles. We worked in coalition with Students Deserve, Black Lives Matter in LA, and many other groups. And we pressured them again because we realized that we were trying to reform the police so much. And the solution is to get rid of the police. And why were the police in the damn schools in the first place? So we pressured them. We had a great relationship with board member Monica Garcia. And to our surprise, she came back with a proposal for 90, a 90% 90 cut of the LA school police, right? They ended up cutting the LA school police by 35%. They ended up spending $90 million on black students. Wow. You know, the theory of organizing that I've learned in playbook and in a lot of the different books is that the movement isn't strong enough right now to really fully take on a several trillion dollar empire, but we're strong enough to influence other folks on the other side. 
and we were able to influence Monica Garcia. We were able to, Eric was able to influence Steve Zipperman, right? That, that's his name? Zipperman to actually give back the tanks, right? We've been able at every point to figure out and talk to people's hearts and minds and get them to actually do stuff. We're calling on a lot of the Black elected officials at the Metro to do things, right? And you know what's scarier about it is that the racism and the apartheid and the genocide is even more explicit at Metro than it is anywhere else. I mean, Black people are 9% of the population, but we're receiving 50% of the tickets, 50% of the citations. That is the least amount, the least number that has been the, in effect for the last 20 years. How in the world are you going on for 20 years, basically bringing genocide against the Black nation, right? So we realized that many of the Democrats here in Los Angeles are the upkeepers of neocolonialism, and they're working towards our underdevelopment in many ways. And I don't know what the solution is, but I know this is one of the solutions is that we got to keep trying things and keep experimenting. And I think that is part of what tonight is, which is that we have strategy and soul. We've been talking about the ideas of strategy and soul for many years, which is how do we have an organization to do everything? So we have a bookstore. We are our own publishing house. We have a theater. We have an organizing office. We are trying to think through strategy and soul food because you can look at the corner. There's only Krispy Kremes here on the corner, right? We're trying to figure out how to build a machine, as I've said when we first opened, to take on the system. The National Leadership School for Strategic Organizing is the newest component of that machine. And Eric is going to talk a lot more about this, but I feel like We've done a lot of experimentation and there's a pattern and practice that's arising, which is that we do very close one-on-ones. We do a lot of meetings with folks and we're doing a lot of theory through practice. And uh, that brings me to my story that I got involved with the Bus Riders Union and learned how to do a lot of organizing just by going out in the field, by doing a lot of one-on-ones with Eric I remember we would do a lot of late nights and reading emails and he would explain, which has been a very big impact. Did you get that political line that I'm making? I'm setting an edge here. Did you get the difference between this political line and that political line? Did you read their email that they sent? And did you read my response? And do you get the differences between those responses? And that level of training has been so helpful because there's so much going on in the world, there's so much going on in the movement that it will go over your head if you're not trained. And if you're not coming at it with a planned and conscious character. So with that, you know, the last thing I'll, I'll bring up is that part of that training has led us and part of the challenging of the Democrats has led us to figure out what is the next step in our organizing, right? And one of the next steps in our organizing has been running for city council. So I ran in 2020. I got 5% of the vote, 2,400 votes, 10% of the black vote. And it wasn't until we ran for city council, and I do say we, we ran until for city council that a lot of the elected officials started to take us serious. And the spoiler alert is that we're gonna run again in 2024.
And we've have, we have a lot of lessons from this past experience, which I'm writing up. And I think between running for city council, strategy in Seoul, the National Leadership School for Strategic Organizing, and all of the pieces of the machine of the Strategy Center, I think we're trying something. I don't know if it's like a pot of gold, but at least we're trying something, we're experimenting, we're putting it to the test, we're failing, and we're getting right back up and doing it all over again. And, uh, you know, I think that's, that, that is the grounding of tonight. This is another experiment of figuring out how do we bring something together and try something and figure out, can we bring our fractured movement together to just do something? I am pleased and honored to be invited to participate in tonight's event by Eric and Shannon. I would like to acknowledge our good friend, Robin D.G. Kelly, co-editor of The Russian Revolution, A View from the Third World by Walter Rodney. My present tonight is twofold. First, I bring greetings from the Rodney family on the launch of the National Leadership School for Strategic Organizing. And secondly, to give some personal insights about Walter's writing, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, which was published by Bogle Overture and the Tanzania Publishing House. After Walter was banned from Jamaica in October 1968, he spent some time in Cuba writing and reflecting on his future role in the academy. Shaka and I returned to Dar ahead of Walter. I was pregnant with our second child, Kanini. We were a very young family. Shaka was three years old and Kanini was four months old when Walter met her for the first time. Asha was born two years later. Walter at age 27 years returned to Tanzania to commence teaching at the University of Dar es Salaam. At the time of writing How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, he was teaching and preparing lectures on a new course he was going to teach on the Russian Revolution. In the original publication of How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, the book was dedicated to Mathoni, Mashaka, and myself, and the extended family. Why is this significant? These were the women who comprised his support system directly and indirectly. Walter loved life. He always found time to spend with our children and their friends. In Dar, one of our favorite ways to spend the weekend was playing Scrabble or Monopoly. Our home was a social hub on campus, always filled with friends, food, dancing, and laughter. Walter typed with two fingers. 
with one of the children on his lap. He was good at these dual tasks, typing and babysitting. He would have loved all of this new technology. Walter never did his writing in isolation. There were always people around him, students and comrades engaged with his work. For How Europe on the Development, he asked two students, Karim Herji and the late Henry Mapolo, to comment on the draft chapters. How Europe on the Developed Africa illustrates Rodney's insights for examining the ongoing struggles facing the African continent and developed a framework for analysis, which is even more relevant today. Karim Herji noted in the enduring relevance of how Europe on the developed Africa, and I quote, its basic methodology has withstood the test of time and remained solid. Its relevance for understanding the African past, grasping the trajectory from the time of independence and importantly, for insight into distinctive future scenarios that may unfold. He concluded that how Europe on developed Africa is relevant for Africa today as when it was first published. Walter's assassination on June the 30th, 1980, at the age of 38 years has left a deep void not just in the field of scholarship and politics, but as a husband and father, leaving three young children, ages 13, 11, and nine. My children and I established the Walter Rodney Foundation in 2006 to further his legacy by sharing his works and activism. The Walter Rodney Foundation is based in Atlanta, Georgia. My daughter, Asha, will now speak about the foundation and the upcoming symposium. Thank you. Good evening. I hope everyone can hear me. Um, greetings. My name is Asha Rodney and I bring you greetings from the Walter Rodney Foundation as board co-chair and chair of the symposium committee. I would like to express my appreciation for the invitation extended by Eric and the team on this, the occasion of the launch of the National Leadership School for Strategic Organizing. It is certainly a privilege to be here with my mother, Dr. Patricia Rodney, and the other distinguished presenters. And I'm particularly thrilled to be here with Robin D.G. Kelly, who is a comrade, colleague, and friend. Among the major programs of the Walter Rodney Foundation, are the annual Walter Rodney Symposium in March of every year, the Walter Rodney Speaker Series, which is conducted in the spring, and the maintenance of the Walter Rodney Papers and Special Collection at the Robert W. Woodruff Library in Atlanta. That in addition to the publication of his books and scholarly articles. Of course, we continue to seek justice for Walter Rodney and his brother, Donald Rodney, on June 10th of last year, of this year, I'm sorry, 41 year of last year, I'm sorry, 41 years after Rodney's assassination, the government of Guyana finally accepted responsibility for its direct role in, in his assassination. 
you should receive a follow-up announcement through Eric regarding our June event, which will further explore um, reparative justice for the, for the Rodney family, as well as for the people of Guyana. Robin's lecture is titled, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa and the Genius of Walter Rodney, and is fitting for the launch of the Leadership School. What is synergistic here is that the foundation is in the process of developing Rodney's values and principles into a curriculum, um, into tools or a handbook of sorts. And so Robin's subtitle, Legacies and Lessons for Today's Movements is timely and visionary. I extend a warm welcome for you all to join us for the 19th annual Walter Rodney Symposium on March the 26th from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern. It will be a virtual event. Uh, we have a keynote speaker who is Joyce Ladner, and we also have a distinguished speaker, Vijay Prashad. Vijay also wrote the foreword to the Russian Revolution. We also have a Rodney Nareri panel looking at the contributions and contemporary application of these global giants who would be 80 and 100 years old, respectively. Before I close, I just want to read something very briefly from How Europe. People always ask me, what is How Europe about? And I always say, I can't say it better than Walter Rodney could. I read briefly from the preface. He says, this book, How Europe Wants to Develop Africa, derives from a concern with the contemporary African situation. It delves into the past only because otherwise it would be impossible to understand how the present came into being and what the trends are for the near future. And he continues, hopefully the facts and interpretation that follow will make a small contribution towards reinforcing the conclusion that African development is possible only on the basis of a radical break with the international capitalist system which has been the principal agency of underdevelopment of Africa over the last five centuries, and we would say through today. So again, I wanna thank you all for inviting us to be here and we look forward to um, tonight's events. Thanks again. Uh, um. That's that's where you shout to have physical space on MLK and Crenshaw. Um, and then to also have hundreds of comrades from all over the country, maybe I imagine all over the world tuning in virtually. So for all my homies in Eastern Standard Time, I feel you. Thanks for hanging in there. Um, and what a blessing uh, to be able to share the sacred space, both with the Labor Community Strategy Center fam and everyone else that is both in this physical and this virtual space that we are in together. I, when I was talking, to, Eric's talked about the hours and hours and hours and hours of preparation for this event. <laughs> um, and one of the things that we started our conversation about this school with when, when they told me that they were studying Walter Rodney's incredible canon of work, but specifically this book, I was like, oh yeah, you know, it was it was foundational. And he was like, well, how was it foundational, Ashley? And I was like, well, you know, because people like you and Robin and Jamala insisted that some of us know who Walter Rodney was. And I think that's important not only because Walter Rodney in and of himself is just foundational to my understanding of how to be a Pan-Africanist, but 
even more so that it opened up so much theory and practice of other folks that were building out a new lift. And I think that's important, both wearing my Highlander hat and just being a person that believes in black liberation in my lifetime, that there's been a, a, a historical overcorrection on the left. <laughs> Let me tell you why I think that. So Highlander even, let's talk about our 90 years of service that uh, we'll be celebrating this year. Thank you. If I asked most folks that know a little bit about Highlander, about our history, they'd be like, y'all were incredible in the 30s. Why were we incredible in the 30s? Well, we're going to get there, but tell me about the 30s. The 30s was the Great Depression, and at that point, Highlander brought together a bunch of rural folks, workers. Uh, they helped integrate the AFL-CIO, right, the labor school. So people definitely love talking my head off about labor. And then they'll fast forward to the 1950s, the 60s, the 70s, and Highlander was doing what? training Rosa Parks, right? Or MLK came once, or uh, SNCC found a home there. John Lewis had his first integrated mill there. All of those things are critically important. And then typically after we get through the 60s and 70s, I'm leaning into the 70s, but it might be a little bit of a stretch. Then there's just like a gap until the 21st century and then it's all of a sudden like highlanders work now but there's not a whole lot of conversation about what happened in the 80s and 90s particularly with the new left who in no small way was influenced by walter rodney and there's no way you get from the 60s and 70s to the movement for black lives or blm without the new left so i just i i start there to say that the the intentional uh, dismantling of black movement infrastructure in the 60s and 70s was not only something that impacted us because of the lack of infrastructure come the 21st century, uh, but also led to some overcorrections of us making sure that folks didn't forget about what happened in the 60s and 70s that totally erased the impact in the 80s and 90s. I think it matters in a 21st century context because we're not the first, last, or only to do this work. Walter Rodney taught me that there were plenty of folks that were having these conversations before I was alive, that we are the continuation of a long legacy of resistance to capitalism, to militarism, to white supremacy, to exploitation of black communities, both in the US and abroad. And what I know now, my assertion, is that we need to be building that Pan-African social movement of the 21st century that the thing that the white right is not afraid to do is build global movements. That the thing that fascists are not scared to practice is global solidarity. Um, and not that we need to replicate their shit because they're terrible, um, but we need to quit conceding that they are also the first, the last, and the only to be doing these things. What Walter Rodney teaches me is that scholarship and our revolutionary practice is not something that we inherited from white academics. Y'all didn't hear me. For all of my, my millennial comrades and younger that would say that scholarship is elitist, Walter Rodney teaches me <laughs> that that's actually my radical tradition. Walter Rodney teaches me that not only do the, the forces of evil use multi-tactical strategies, but so have our people in resisting it. 
I think that what is exciting to me about the National School is the ability for us to come together in great debate, which is spaces that, quite frankly, I think many of us have been thirsty for and have not had the capacity to build ourselves. To be able to think about political education, not just because it's intellectually stimulating. I could listen to Robin Kelly say his ABCs and be stimulated. <laughs> I, could, I could listen to Jamala Rogers talk all day, but not just for the sake of me being a smarter person, for the sake of me actually taking that new knowledge that could only be developed if we came together across our differences. If we debated and sharpened each other, even in disagreement, to actually do something with the new knowledge. So I'm excited about what it'll mean to have that space for debate. I'm excited about what it'll mean towards taking that new knowledge and doing something with it to actually change the material conditions of our people. You know, often people talk about education as a way to learn how to be a good citizen. That's the point of American education. What we know is that it's actually a strategy to build more productive workers, to be the very means of production that they consolidate and control. What we say we're doing with this project is coming together as seasoned organizers to get about the business of new world building. I think what Walter Rodney teaches us is what happens when you might control the government, maybe, or governance, regardless of the governmental form, but you don't control the economy. What is our 21st century reckoning about what it means to actually draw a line that Black people cannot be free under capitalism, regardless of our political power? We talked about, we heard my comrade Imani talking about extraction, but what does it look like when not only is there economic extraction and there's extraction of natural resources and human resources, but there's a greenwashing of extraction that includes tourism on the continent, in the US South, in places like LA, the Super Bowl was just here. And the, what LA's got like the second largest homeless population in the country. And what I was told is that the 14 billion that the Super Bowl brought in uh, is enough to actually end world hunger. <laughs> Underdevelopment isn't a symptom, it is a choice. Underdevelopment is an intentional choice that consolidates the wealth and power of a minority of class and racially privileged people, powerful people all over the world. The question here, I think Walter Rodney would encourage us to think about is causation and correlation, right? Underdevelopment isn't a correlation to capitalism. As Robin said, it is causation. It is the actual choice that they are making. And if that is the case, then what we also learn from Walter Rodney, that the myth of progress, that there's a myth about progress not being able to happen until we have the money to do it. When actually what we know is that we have the money to do it and it's being extracted. I think there's so many other foundational pieces that I'm sure have been influenced by Walter Rodney that are also critical to our understanding of how we move forward in a 21st century context. I'd throw out 16 lessons learned in building the Black Radical Congress that one of our comrades who just spoke <laughs> helped write. I think playbook for progressives and hopefully the, the promise, but I have yet to see memoir of Eric Mann. There's so many pieces that are coming out that we can get right here at Strategy and Soul. The important question to me in a 21st century context is how do we know what we know? 
And what do we do with what we've learned? What are we supposed to be learning right now? And if I was asked why, Ashley, did you find it important during an endemic to fly to LA to be in this conversation, I would say that what Walter Rodney taught me is as goes the South, the global South, so goes any nation. So goes any nation. And so our relationship as Southern folks to our comrades that are closest to the pain, the most directly impacted here in LA matters because it's gonna disproportionately impact me in the US South and even more disproportionately impact folks who live and look and love like me everywhere else. So I'm excited about this school. I'm excited about what it will mean for us to continue to be in this debate, both about economics and governance and everything else, um, not just for the sake of intellectually stimulating conversation, but for the sake of actually the development of sound multi-tactical strategies that are being implemented by a Black-led multiracial movement for democracy. Um, and I think that's why people are willing to be a part of this conversation. I want to thank the Labor Community Strategy Center for opening the space. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show. The voice you were just listening to was Ashley Woodard Henderson, co-director of the Highlander Center. And you were listening to an excerpt from How Europe Underdeveloped Africa and the Genius of Walter Rodney, an event that we held at Strategy and Soul on February 17th as part of the launch of the National Leadership School for Strategic Organizing. Again, this is part two in this series. There are still three more speakers yet to be heard on Voices from the Frontlines. Next week, we'll hear from Imani Contes, director of U.S. Africa Bridge Building Project. We'll also hear from Jamala Rogers, director of Organization for Black Struggle. And finally, Eric Mann, director of the Strategy Center and co-host of Voices from the Frontlines. Voices from the Frontlines is a call and response show. We want to hear from you. Email us at eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com or info at thestrategycenter.org. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Make sure to subscribe to the Voices from the Frontlines podcast at voicesfromthefrontlines.com. You could listen to our podcast shows on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We hope to hear from you soon. Tune in next week. All power to the people. Much more than this, I did my way.